listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Whimsical, experimental, multifaceted. The work of composer and performer Anthony R. Green includes musical and visual creations, interpretations, collaborations, educational outreach, and more. Behind all his artistic endeavors are the ideals of equality and freedom, which manifest themselves in diverse ways throughout his work. His digital and acoustic compositions and his piano and vocal performance art performances have been featured in over 20 countries around the world, and he has had nine artist residencies in five countries. He is also the co-founder and associate artist director of Boston-based Castle of Our Skins, dedicated to celebrating black artistry through music. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, it's good to meet. Yeah, good to meet pleasure. you like this. It's amazing to meet you too. Um, I wanted to start off with uh, one of your pieces called "Almost Over," and we'll we'll kind of go through each piece tonight. But I want to start off with this one, and kind of just tell me a little bit about how this how this got started because it the piece to me has kind of a quirky opening that kind of takes us all the way through the piece in some yeah. form or another. So this piece, it's my third sax quartet. And I wanted to compose a piece that symbolized the story of Black people in the United States. And so for this piece, I took a song called Almost Over, which is from an 1867 collection of songs called Slave Songs of the United States. And this collection was compiled by three of the United States' first ethnomusicologists, if not... Yeah, I think they are the first ethnomusicologists of the United States... And um, their names are William Francis Allen, Charles Pickard, and Lucy Kim Garrison. So the melody that you hear at the very beginning of this sax quartet is from that song, uh, Almost Over, which is found in this collection. And what's interesting about this song is that it talks a lot about how hard work is necessary to go to heaven. But when you think about the context of this song and the context of these words, you can get a sense that what, however this song was written, the words also talk about the hard work that's necessary to escaping north to freedom, to fight against being enslaved. Right. So... That's one of the reasons why this particular song stuck with me when I came across it. But I also just thought the melody is quite amazing. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm glad you explained that because it I I was it sounded so in a way it sounded familiar to me, yeah. you know? It was almost like it Really, what it sounds like is it just sounds like kind of the end of a phrase. Yeah, yeah, it is the end of a phrase. <laughs> so okay, that that I was not wrong. <laughs> yeah. 
But what it I was and and I I have to admit I mean this is probably because I've just been watching a lot of Disney movies with my daughters recently. <laughs> it really reminded me, and I'm glad you you went first and told me what it really was. But it really reminded me of um, the song from Mulan, "A Girl Worth Fighting For." Oh my gosh, I don't know that song at all. But it, it basically, the the tag of the entire chorus is like, what do we want? A girl worth fighting for. And it just has that little like similar, similar move at the very end of it. So yeah, I figured it wasn't from Mulan. But no. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you take this from, uh, from that work done by uh, those ethnicologists and um it seems like you've kind of taken this and just kind of made a straight up theme and variations. Is that right? Well, it's not quite a theme and variations. It's more, I would say, um, screwed up Rondo. So okay. it starts out with the tagline at the end. So first, let me just sing the original, if I can remember the words. Sure. Um you know, I can't really remember all of the words, but the melody is dum da da dum da da dum da dum 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 da 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 dum and I thank God it's almost over almost over almost over Ooh, Lord, and I thank God it's almost over. Something like that. Mm-hmm. So the piece opens up with the most familiar and the most re- repeated aspect of that melody. And I thank God almost over. And then you have this interjection of the breaths and the key clicks. And then that repeats mm-hmm. again, and I thank God almost oh, with a slight variation, but then you have a longer interjection, and then you get another one of those repetitions with a variation, and then you get yet another part, and then more of the melody, and then another part, and then more of a melody, and every time a new part comes in, it's extended, so you get these a b a prime b prime a c or a b a triple prime uh sorry right. a double prime and then b triple prime and then a quadruple prime and then c and then another a and then a d <laughs> which is kind of like an a quadruple prime part 2 you know what i mean so right <laughs> it's just this this constant back and forth of recycling but re-envisioning and recontextualizing. And every time a new part comes in, it's a little bit longer and it's also a little bit more symbolic. So mm-hmm. I wanted to throw in elements of like funk and bebop and a little bit of jazz and R&B and then kind of a triplet waltz is in there with counterpoint and... All of these things are to symbolize things that black people have done throughout history Mm -hmm. and to pay respect to that. But all of the breathing is supposed to evoke lots of the conversations about breath that have been going on, especially since 
Michael Brown was strangled by the police officer and his last words are, I can't breathe, which is why the piece ends the way it does. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Getting back to your, um, the almost over melody, were you saying that every time it comes back, we also hear more of it? Or is it that it gets a different kind of variation every time it comes back? It's a little bit of both, yeah. So okay, as the whole piece progresses, the complete melody is revealed throughout the interjections and throughout these main statements. So at first, you get a statement of the original melody and then these interjections, and then the piece progresses and the melody and the interjections start to marry each other. Right. So so you're with this piece, you're kind of playing in a couple different ways. You're kind of playing on memory with the audience. Definitely. And I mean, not only, you know, remembering the theme and kind of where, like, how, how much did I hear last time and what, what is new that's being added, but also, you know, in kind of treating the theme differently and, um, you know, bringing in the different uh, stylistic elements you're bringing in, you're also like kind of triggering memory that way. Definitely. This piece works in multiple levels with the sim symbo- uh, the sim the symbology. Is that a word? <laughs> the sim- um I don't know. <laughs> the sim- symbolism. symbolism? <laughs> the symbolism yeah. of of the elements within the piece. But Yes, it's also playing with temporal memory as well. So how much of this have you heard before? And when you hear just a little bit more, how much can you recognize? When you hear this statement come back and it's colored differently, how much of this do you remember as well? So, And I, I like this process of, of revelation within my music. I even have a whole string quartet called Revelation that takes four themes and develops them and recontextualizes them through the four movements of this massive 35-minute string quartet. So oh, man. in my music, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly playing with the idea of, of Revelation. And I got this idea actually from one of my composition teachers. His name is Robert Kogan. And he talks a lot about rhizomes you know like onions Uh are are rhizomes and onions have these complicated layers that you peel and peel and peel so this whole idea of peeling away at these at these layers and discovering more of the essence of either a musical element or a musical structure etc it really fascinates me that whole process well, let's uh, let's listen to it now. And uh, what's the sax quartet that's, that we're going to hear on this recording? This sax quartet is the Curris sax quartet. They're based in Amsterdam. And this performance was from the Gaudiamus Music Festival, Music Week in Utrecht last year. So we're going to hear Almost Over.
Thank you. 
I mean, is this piece and, you know, we might, uh, I'm, I'm assuming we'll, we'll get to it at some point, but was this piece part of the, um, castle of our skins project that you are, uh, associate artistic director of no this piece is a piece that just belongs in my repertoire as a composer and um yeah i yeah what what is castle of our skins then so castle of our skins is a boston-based concert and education series organization that's dedicated to celebrating black artistry through music and Mm -hmm. through concerts and education workshops we foster culture, cultural curiosity by talking about issues related to Black history and culture, by programming music of Black composers, by talking about other Black artists throughout the world. We have collaborations with local organizations in Boston. We've done college residencies in Gettysburg and Brandeis. And we're about to do one in our upcoming season at Keene State College. We've also gotten a travel grant to do research at the Center for Black Music Research in Chicago. And we've done international projects as well. So it's this jack-of-all-trades organization that has this very specific mission. But even though the mission is specific, the language of the mission allows us to explore so, so many different avenues of Black culture internationally, nationally, locally, etc. So let's move on to your piece, uh, Through American Time. Yeah. And this is for bassoon and piano. And we're going to hear uh, two movements from that that are just titled with composers' names, Charles Ives and Earl Brown. How many movements are in this piece totally? Seven. And are they all named after composers? Yes. So the idea of this piece really stems from what I like to call my Nichtsart series. And this whole series is basically a study in me taking ideas or specific pieces by composers and using them to form the basis of my own compositions. So I started this series when I was an undergrad, and I didn't really know how to title pieces. So <laughs> Nick Sartre, <laughs> yeah, yeah, those were the days. So Nick Sartre <laughs> was my attempt at double entendre in another language. So Sartre means sweet in German. And I made this vow of using, you know, not typically sweet uh, pieces of music um, for this series. Uh, but Zart is also, you know, the last, not, a little bit more than the last half of Mozart's name. And, um, right. and I never really liked Mozart growing up. So <laughs> this was also... <laughs> This is also a, a way for me to say that these pieces are definitely not Mozart. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, my first Nixart was actually uh, an homage to Stockhausen. And then I moved on to composers like Chelsea and John Cage. And um, my 
my composer teacher, Lee Hyla, who unfortunately is no longer here on this earth physically. So this piece, Through American Time, is uh, it's an homage to Charles Ives, Florence Price, Samuel Barber, Earl Brown, George Crumb, Steve Reich, and Alvin Singleton. And so each movement takes one or a couple of ideas or pieces from these composers and uh, builds little tributes to them. That is definitely, that, that's a good collection you've got there <laughs> of, pe- of people to draw from. Yeah. So, uh, so let's talk about the, the Charles, I, the Charles Ives movement. Yeah. Um, what, fr- what piece or kind of technique were you pulling from Charles Ives? Oh, and yeah. then how did, and how did you take that and then kind of seamlessly mold it into your own, you know, voice or technique or whatever you want to call it? Yes, so I took the melody from the Housatonic at Stockbridge. And I love this melody because not only is it in a song of his, but it's also in one of his orchestral pieces. And playing with this whole idea of multiple streams of time and amazing pianism that Charles Ives has, I decided to create this dreamy, floaty piece that more or less steals the Housatonic melody, stretches it a little bit, and recontextualizes it just within my own harmonic language, but nodding towards Charles Ives. Okay. And I mean, can you, uh, I was actually going to get to this later, but can you kind of describe your own harmonic language? Oh, yeah, that's really tough. Um, One thing that I really like to do when I'm improvising at the piano is focus on the juxtaposition of black and white keys in different distances. Mm -hmm. And... This honestly stems a lot from my background playing piano in church growing up. So I went to a typical black church called the Only Street Baptist Church in Providence, Rhode Island. And that's actually where I got my start in piano. Um, I, I played piano by ear when I was five, and then I started taking lessons when I was 10 And between those years, I got to just play the piano at my church. And eventually, I gained enough talent to accompany the the gospel choirs there and to even Mm -hmm. lead the male choir and teach them songs and make my own arrangements. Excuse me. I ended up accompanying the children's choir the mass choir, which focused on uh, more contemporary gospel pieces, as well as traditional gospel pieces. And I led the male choir as well, as I, as, as I stated before. And then I would be guest pianist for their senior choir when the other pianist wasn't available. And 
through playing gospel, which is such a complex and amazing genre of music. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have to I have to admit that, you know, about probably once a month, I will go down a, um, you know, kind of like gospel or Baptist organ uh-huh. YouTube YouTube hole. Yeah. Like it is just so I and I, I just watch this stuff and I'm like. I feel like such less of a musician (laughs) because they're so good. And I mean, like harmony is just the language. Exactly. They speak, they speak harmony and it's so incredible. Like how, how those players are just so able to turn and pivot and do all these amazing things, go completely outside of the key, but bring it right back. Oh, it's so good. Exactly. So good. They're just accessing all of these external harmonies that somehow fit within the main melody and the main concept of the piece. But they're also speaking rhythm, too. You can't forget the complexities of gospel. Of course. Of course. Yeah, the syncopations, I swear. They're just pieces. And of course, with my big choir at Olney Street, we would learn all the pieces by rote. And it's better that you do because... (laughs) If, when I started to notate some of this stuff, right. yeah, I, I, I really just as an exercise started to notate some of these things and it was just all offbeats. So you can't really give mu- gospel music to a choir and just say, you know, sight read this. It's all about the feeling. It's all about the context. And at the end of the day, it's really all about the purpose. And... This is why I actually feel very strongly about this uh, this type of acculturation of gospel music or the gospel sound in musics that aren't gospel. Because people always say, well, oh yeah, I wanted this gospel feel, but really the true context of gospel is in worship. It's in the church, you know? And I have this whole diatribe about that that I'm not going to get into now. But <laughs> the long no, but story I, yeah, short, I, yeah, the, the, the long story short is that through my experience playing gospel, I was exposed to all sorts of crunches and harmonic tricks that have influenced my pianism and my approach as a composer. Yeah, I mean, that that that's incredible that it has like you know just i i'm i'm sure not seamlessly but but kind of seamlessly made its way into into your own language because as i was listening to your pieces the one thing that w- was really striking to me i mean not the one thing but a thing that was very striking to me was just your your kind of gift for for being able to go a lot of different places harmonically and it still feels very natural and it feels like it's still you. Mm, mm. Well, thank you. So uh, let's talk about the Earl Brown piece. What, uh, you know, what were you kind of pulling from Earl Brown or which pieces inspired you? So Earl Brown, let's just fangirl a little bit over Earl Brown. (laughs) I mean, what an... Because I'm going to be right there with you. (laughs) Yes. What an incredible, incredible composer. 
you know, part of this New York school. And with Earl Brown, he had an artist mentor, and his artist mentor was Alexander Calder. And Mm -hmm. Calder had this whole theory about how the whole world is a mobile, you know, it's this one solid form with these moving parts. And Earl Brown was completely enthralled by this idea. And when he started doing all of these quasi-aleatoric processes with these boxes and made up his own way of, of, of conducting his pieces and, and gathering structures and, and fluid structures, that idea really, really spoke to me when I was first studying Earl Brown and and getting into his music. So I just took that whole idea, that box idea, and created this score full of boxes with numbered gestures. And I give the bassoonist and the pianist instructions as to how to navigate themselves through these boxes and create a piece it's it's amazing how you know when when a lot of young composers or people who are just uh just exploring indeterminacy or or aleatory for the first time you know and and how much his you know historical text and whatever that every all the credit goes to john cage yeah and i mean a lot a lot of it should but if you if you really look at what how composers are still using indeterminacy and aleatory, you know Cage, Feldman, Christian Wolf, they all use some form or another of it. But it was it's really Earl Brown's kind of version of indeterminacy and aleatory that has stuck around. I think. Definitely. You know, not a lot of people are flipping coins and rolling dice anymore. You know, you don't see just the just the high, middle, low boxes of Feldman anymore. And oh, my God, whatever the hell Christian Wolf was doing, that <laughs> that is definitely just Christian Wolf. But Earl Brown seemed to be the most accessible to um, to other composers as just purely a. um an apparatus to get their uh, to get their ideas across. Definitely, definitely, and we also can't forget his contribution to graphic notation, which yeah. basically happened mm-hmm. because his wife was a choreographer. You know, <laughs> so mm-hmm. he was using dance notation to create one of the first graphic graphically notated pieces of music in history. So let's listen to these two pieces of yours. And again, the entire uh, the entire collection is called Through American Time. And we're going to hear Movement 1, which is Charles Ives, and Movement 4, which is Earl Brown. Uh, who are the players that we're going to hear? This is the Noise to Signal Ensemble. And this was performed uh, at the Bowling Green University. So this is Through American Time. Mm-hmm. 
So let's move on to your piece, I Shall Shake His Hand. Yes. And we are going to he- we're going to hear uh, the second movement, which is titled Sonata, or <laughs> not Sonata, uh, son- <laughs> Sonnet 23, Oncoming. Yeah. And this is a piece for tenor and contrabeat. Uh, sorry, let me say that again. This is a piece for tenor and contrabass. Uh, where does the text come from? The text I composed, all of the text of the entire piece. Um, so when I was in high school... We studied Shakespeare, and everyone always said, oh, Shakespeare, he wrote 100 sonnets, and they're all really, really good. And I just thought to myself, well, I can write 100 sonnets. So in high school, I wrote 100 sonnets. And um, yeah, most of them are are quite bad. But... But there are some that really stuck out, and I like to use them from time to time in my own music. So, yeah, this particular sonnet was my 23rd sonnet. And um, maybe I should read the text? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so here it is, sonnet 23. And ultimately he will come to me with finger long and stretched and bony white. I doubt that I will notice him or see. I doubt I'll be prepared for futile fight. In nighttime or in daytime he will come to knock on fate's last closing door for error. Immediate, my conscience growing numb, he rids the pain that always held me there. And reasoning will fail to give escape. All logic will mean nothing in the end. And time will stop its pestering and rape. I'll have no remedy that can amend. But I shall shake his hand and follow him, to worlds beyond my own, so blank and dim. So what is that? What's the, what can we take away from this? What What's the meaning of this text? Well, I wanted to write a process, uh, to write a sonnet about death, because at that time I was obsessed with Emily Dickinson and her view of death. I even wrote my my 10th grade term paper about death in the works of Emily Dickinson and how in most of her poems, she's actually celebrating death and viewing death as this positive, uh, positive process or, or this positive entity. So in the sonnet that I wrote, I Definitely at that time was using more stereotypical images of death as this skeletal figure cloaked and coming towards you and shaking your hand or touching you in some way to bring you into this other realm of of whatever that means. But one of the lines, now that I kind of look back on on this poem from my future self, that one of the lines that really sticks out to me is, you know, all logic will mean nothing in the end and time will stop its pestering and rape. So I remember both back then and to a certain extent to to today, time being a real issue, you know, (laughs) time 
just getting in the way of things. You know, we're, we're always talking about not having enough time to go see a movie or to relax or to finish writing a grant or whatnot. But when you die, time is basically gone. You know, time is not necessarily taken away from you, but you're removed from time. So time can't pester you. Um, so I guess that is, I think, my favorite aspect of, of this sonnet that I wrote. And in this in this larger piece, how many movements does it have? Oh, yeah, this has three movements. And the two outer movements are shorter poems. That that you also wrote as well? Yeah, definitely. So yeah. The, the first poem is called Solitude. And that was actually written in the style of Emily Dickinson. And then the outer poem is called Funeral. And um, I wrote that in 2001... It was the very, very first time that I cried at a funeral and mm. um, and I needed to just write a poem about it. So, yeah. And then this is set for tenor and contrabass. How did that pairing kind of come about? Well, there was a time in my life where I used to compose for composition competitions so okay (laughs) i'm guessing you don't do that anymore (laughs) not so so much (laughs) yeah (laughs) but the thing is um i always wanted to use this text anyway and i never composed for a competition without the idea of of being able to use the piece for either multiple competitions or for projects in the future yeah um or just using the whole process of composing these pieces as a way to expand my craft. So it was actually wonderful to think about how a tenor voice can pair with a bass and to think about the spectral possibilities and the harmonic possibilities. So in composing the piece, I just thought, well, yeah, maybe it won't get selected for this composition, and it didn't. But I will have fun writing this piece anyway. I mean, as long as you take that that attitude going into one of those things, you can't go wrong. <laughs> exactly. And there was no fee, so. Uh, that, that's always a good thing, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's listen to it now. So this is I Shall Shake His Hand, movement two, which is sonnet 23. And the performers we're going to hear are Julian Otis, tenor, and Christian Dillingham, contrabass.
And then on to your last piece, and this is where we're going to hear a movement from Donna Nobis Veritatum. Yes. A setting of American text. Did you write this text as well? Did I write this text? Oh, God, no. This text oh. <laughs> is the preamble to the U.S. Constitution. The, oh, okay. <laughs> the, the Bill of I guess I haven't had I, I guess I haven't had civics class in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so the whole piece sets the 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 preamble, the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're hearing movement four, kind of where in that uh, in that section of text is movement four? So movement four uses the second amendment and the third amendment. And we are all familiar with the second amendment because it yeah. is a hot, hot, hot topic. I wonder if the average American could tell you what the Third Amendment is, though. The Third because Amendment, Because obvi- yeah. obviously the First Amendment and the Second Amendment are probably the two most famous ones yeah. right now. And, you know, but I, I wonder. I mean, I'm thinking about it right now, and I'm going to be honest. I can't tell you what it is. Yeah. Well, it's the amendment that was responsible for the Quartering Act. So... The Third Amendment is no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. And one of the reasons, well, one of the many reasons why I composed this piece was to also contextualize the Second Amendment, because when the Second and the Third and the Fourth Amendment came out, which was in close proximity to each other. It was at a time when the United States was being bombarded by all of these British soldiers. So so the United States government basically said, well, we need to to have protections to to protect ourselves against these foreign entities. So the Second Amendment, which begins a well-regulated militia, and that's how, how it begins, well-regulated, let's repeat that again, well-regulated militia, <laughs> being, being necessary to the security of a free state, once again, it doesn't begin right to bear arms. It's well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. So basically... This amendment is talking about protecting yourself against a foreign entity and not just against your average American citizen. And even within the amendment, there's a stipulation of regulation. So, yes. <laughs> I mean, when uh, I guess I guess my point of the Third Amendment was that, you know, when you when you really go back and look at what these things were designed for in the moment when they were being done and then bring them forward to the present, I mean, the Third Amendment right now makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, which is why no one knows it. Exactly. But you can ex- you can extend that to the Second Amendment as Ex- well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Especially considering that the type of guns that were 
available to citizens muskets. back then. Yeah, were muskets. It, it took, you know, three minutes to put in one bullet. And I'm pretty sure the the founding fathers never envisioned a country where you can empty 60, 70, 80 bullets in less than 30 seconds, you know. Yeah. So it's about time to have an amendment to that amendment, if you ask me. I would definitely agree. So how did you uh, uh, get like form form this kind of this ensemble? It's uh, set for viola, soprano and piano. Yeah. So this was a commission from one of my soprano friends named Amanda Bulat. And she was originally going to perform it with two of her friends. But something kind of fell through with a performance. So I had this piece composed most of which I composed in my father's house, which is where I am right now, which is amazing. <laughs> and my father lives in Arlington uh, in a spot that's actually quite close to the cemetery and the Pentagon and D.C. So composing this piece in my father's house was symbolic on, on many, many levels. And, yeah. um, and when I finished the piece and Amanda unfortunately couldn't, couldn't perform it, um, I immediately knew two performers that I wanted to work with. I was doing my master's at the time at New England Conservatory. So I sent emails to my friend Cecilia and my friend Ash Gordon. And Ash Gordon is the co-founder of Castle of Our Skins, and she's the current artistic director of the organization. So this project, this performance was... Um, one of the first times that Ash and I worked together rather closely in a musical context, and this solidified our musical relationship. So this piece is actually a little bit um, a part of the reason why Castle of Our Skins exists as well. That's great. So, um, I mean, that that it, it so often you 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 know like oh let's get together and play a piece and then you find out in the in between times when you're not rehearsing oh we should do something bigger that's great yeah so we're going to listen to this piece now and again this is Dona Nobis Veritatum a setting of american text and again the performers were Cecilia Allwine soprano Ashley Gordon Viola and myself on the piano.
come to the uh, last question that I ask all the guests that are on the podcast, and that is, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue as your life? Mm. Well, before I answer that question, I want to add one more thing about Dona Novi's Veritatem that's a little bit cheeky. So I mentioned earlier that growing up, I didn't really like Mozart. And one of the things that I always heard by Mozart was um, his round uh, Dona Nobis Pachem. So mm-hmm. when I got this commission, I wanted to play on that idea. So Dona Nobis Veritatem means give us truth. So now I will answer your final question. Got it. How I came into music. So I mentioned earlier that I I started playing piano by ear when I was five. And this happened in a kindergarten class in Providence, Rhode Island, which is where I grew up. And eventually, my kindergarten teacher told my mom that I really should start to take lessons. And people at church also said, yeah, you know, you have talent on the piano, so you should start to study. So we shopped through music teachers and eventually found this local teacher named Susan Kelly, who's just such an amazing piano teacher. And in her lessons, she also taught me quite a bit of music theory. And I didn't know how much music theory she was teaching me until I got to Boston University from my undergrad and passed some of the the classes, the introductory classes, and went straight right. to an advanced theory class. So um so that was basically my my entrance into music was just playing piano by ear and then thinking, well I need to to major in this. But of course, you know, you have these moments in undergrad, at least I had this moment in my undergrad where I just thought, should I even continue to do this, you know? Um, And what inspired me to go on was actually doing a kind of self-study. So two things. My old piano teacher, Susan Kelly, she, she suggested that I go to chamber music camp And I did. I ended up spending some summers at the Apple Hill Center for Chamber Music where I met some amazing people, many of of whom I'm friends with till this day. And when I was at Apple Hill, I composed quite a bit. So I composed a couple of solo piano pieces. I composed some chamber music pieces. I even composed this mock kind of PDQ style piece called Mozart's Piano Concerto for Orchestra. See, I really hated Mozart. So <laughs> I, I guess, man. <laughs> I always made fun of Mozart. And um and I composed... I wasn't a big fan of 
I wasn't a big fan of Beethoven for a really, really long time. So oh. I, I get that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we all have our, our things. And um but yeah, this this Mozart piano concerto for orchestra piece was this big hit. And I just remember I really love composing. I really love composing. But no one around me actually said that that was a thing that you can do. So I just spent mm-hmm. lots of my free time composing, just thinking nothing of it. And by the time I got to Boston University for my undergrad, I had this portfolio of pieces. And one of, and another undergrad named Naftali Schindler, who's also a wonderful composer, saw my pieces and said, you know, you should think about double majoring. So at the end of my first semester, I showed my pieces to Dr. Richard Cornell, and he said, oh yeah, you should definitely be a composer. So I started my composition major my sophomore year of Boston University, and I remember just going to the library in between these classes, and I would take out a new score every day and listen to that piece because the library had an extensive CD collection. And when I got to Gruppen by Stockhausen, I just thought, what is this craziness? What is this, <laughs> what is this cutoff score? What is this sound world? I want to know more. I can't believe this is even possible. I can't believe music has even done this. And I just completely got enthralled. And that was the moment where I just thought, yeah, I need to to be a composer. So, and kind of an addendum to that story, I, I never seen Gruppen in real life, but recently I just bought tickets to Lucerne to see two performances of Gruppen in the same day. Oh, man. Yeah. So I'm super, I'm, super I'm, I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and my friend Sam Kelder is going to be principal violist in one of the three orchestras, so I'm I'm really excited to see it. It's it's so hard to to teach that piece, you yeah. know, because if you're not if you're not seeing it live or if you're not hearing it live, you're not hearing it. Exactly. You know, no no stereo recording is ever going to come come close, so yeah man i'm I'm jealous that's great <laughs> yeah i mean the best way to hear that piece would be in like 6.1 you know <laughs> yeah yeah mm-hmm. so but not a, not a lot of market for those cds out there nope <laughs> yeah so well that sounds awesome have fun um, before we go, can you tell everyone where they can find more of the, your music and connect with you online and see what you're up to? Definitely. So my website is anthonyrgreen.com. I am also on Twitter at PRGNO84, P-I-A-R-G-N-O-8-4. That's also my handle for Instagram and my SoundCloud is soundcloud.com slash piargno p-i-a-r-g-n-o which is also my vimeo and my youtube and if you want to hear more and learn more about castle of our skins 
then we are www.castleskins.org. And we also have Twitter and Facebook, and that is handle Castleskins. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this, Anthony. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.